always good to see our church um, and the kids and us moving back to you know, more of a sense of normalcy. Not that things are, we're back to completely normal and not that we place our hope and our trust in that, but it's good to see that the way that the Lord is working. All right, so um, for this morning, as those of you who are regulars here, you know that I'm not frequently up here for this portion, but today I get the opportunity to bring you the word and I'm grateful for it. Now, typically whenever I am asked um, to preach, it's usually as part of a, a larger sermon series Either we're going through a book of scripture or there are verses or topics that I'm restricted to uh, that are part of an overall series. But this time, however, I was given free reign to choose whatever I wanted from the entire Bible. And in many ways, that's harder because it's hard to choose when you have so many options to choose from, right? That's the uh, uh, paralysis by analysis uh, feature that uh, we, we encounter a lot when we're looking at menus and we have no idea what we want. Um, but as I considered what the church tends to struggle with, and as I considered what are the challenges that are common to us, something became very clear and very obvious to me, and that's anxiety. And if I were to ask all of you, how many of you struggle with anxiety? Actually, let's just do this. Let's raise your hand. If you, do you struggle with anxiety? How many of you here struggle with anxiety? I see a lot of hands coming up. And that's all of us. I see a good representation amongst all of you. If you're a collegian, you might be anxious about your classes or what you're going to do after you graduate. If you're single, you're perhaps anxious about dating and getting married. If you are married, you may be anxious about having kids or caring for your kids or buying a house. If you have investments, you may be anxious quite a lot recently about a recession. If you drive a car, you might be anxious about gas prices. If you're working, you can be anxious about your deadlines at work or your performance reviews. And if you're in ministry, you may be anxious about whether people are doing well in the Lord. Regardless of who you are or what you're doing, it seems that anxiety is always nearby just waiting to get a hold of you. And if you pay any attention to the culture at large, it seems that the more we advance and the more we progress as a society, the more anxious we get. Just consider some of the terms that have become commonplace in our culture. Separation anxiety. That's something that many parents here are familiar with. There's climate anxiety, performance anxiety, social anxiety, there's even range anxiety. In the past few years, COVID anxiety has become a thing. Of course, we all know about FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. When you see that your friends are posting things about their great experiences that you weren't a part of. And I didn't even realize this, but apparently there's a whole family of related anxieties with FOMO. There's FOMO's cousin, Momo, which is the mystery of missing out, where your friends are not posting, and you fear everyone's just too busy having a good time, and things are happening without you even knowing about it. There's foji, which is the fear of joining in, where you don't post things because you fear that it's not interesting enough for other people to care about. And then there's a term that has become more in vogue lately, 
that captures all of these aspects together and more, mental health. Now, it's not my intention to downplay the sometimes very extreme nature of these anxieties that people may experience. These feelings are real, and they can't just be dismissed. My point is that anxiety is everywhere. And sadly, it's even in the church. Brothers and sisters, the church should be different. If the church is just like the world, then we have a problem. The church should not be like the world because the church has God. And that should make a difference. If we're just as anxious as the world, if there is no difference, what does that say about the God whom we say that we trust? But it's, this is a reality, isn't it? A reality that we can't ignore. And we acknowledge it, but then how do we deal with it? How do you, we cope with the anxiety that is so pervasive in our culture and so prevalent in our own lives? And oftentimes, we can deal with it in the same way that the world does. We can externalize the source of our anxieties. We attribute them to something that is separate from ourselves that removes our responsibility for our own anxiety. The world, they might blame genetics. It may blame brain chemistry. It may blame past trauma. All things that we don't have control over. And within the church, we're actually not that different. But our scapegoat of choice tends to be our circumstances. And it's revealed in the way that we speak about it. In the end, it's the same. We blame something that is outside of our control. And a question I pose to you this morning, how much do we misdiagnose our anxiety? How much do you believe that anxiety is something that happens to you rather than something that you are responsible for? How much do you believe that anxiety is something that happens to you rather than something that you are responsible for? And the world has ways to deal with anxieties. There's catharsis, or releasing your repressed emotions. There's sometimes medical intervention. You deal with hormonal imbalances or brain chemistry with medication. Sometimes there's relaxation techniques. You have breathing exercises, aromatherapy, whatever it may be. Now, I'm not saying that there is no place for physical helps. If you're hangry and then you're irritable because of that, you should probably eat something. If you're tired and not dealing with other people well, you can take a nap. If you have physical pain and that's affecting things, there's nothing wrong with taking something for to help with that. But while these things may help manage the symptoms, none of the world's solutions will deal with the underlying problem that's lurking beneath all of these things. Because the world's solutions, they all ignore the sufficiency of God's word. And therefore, they ignore the God of peace. And they ignore the God of comfort. So how about us? Do we as God's church also doubt the sufficiency of his word? So collegians, when you're worried about your future after you graduate, do you believe that the relief for your anxiety comes in the form of a job interview? Would that help? Or does that come from the sufficient word of God? Singles, when you're anxious about finding a spouse, do you believe that an engagement ring would fix your anxiety? Seem, sure seems like it would. Or does it come in the pages of this book? And marrieds, when you're anxious about taking care of your family, would you find more relief in a fully paid off home and full ride scholarships for all of your kids? Or do you find 
more relief from God's word. And you might say, Kevin, the Bible is great, but it ain't going to pay my mortgage. Well, to that I would say, no, but your problem, your real problem, is in your mortgage. Many of us attribute our anxiety to our life circumstances. But when we do that, we are subtly blaming God for our anxieties. It's like we're saying, God, if you didn't give me these circumstances, I would not be anxious. Or if you fixed these circumstances, I would stop being anxious. And additionally, if you attribute your anxiety to your circumstances, do you realize that you are also inadvertently resigning yourself to always being anxious? Because if you believe that your anxiety comes from your circumstances, then the only means to actually deal with that is to fully control all of your circumstances and try as we may to work harder, to do more, to ensure we can fix what needs fixing in our lives. Last time I checked, we are not sovereign over all things. God is the only one who can control all your circumstances. And I've got news for you. God is not in the business of fixing your circumstances. He is in the business of fixing you. God is not in the business of fixing your circumstances. He is in the business of fixing you. So the cure for anxiety, therefore, is not to seize more control and change your circumstances, but to trust in the God who is with you amidst your circumstances. If you're a Christian, you don't belong to the world. You have a relationship with the living God who is over all things. You actually know him. You call him Father, and you have his promises and his solution written down and preserved for you throughout centuries of history in the Bible that you can reach for and grab at any time. There are a number of passages that we could turn to this morning from this book, but today I'd like to focus our attention on a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. So let's turn to our passage for this morning. Uh, We'll be in Philippians 4, and we'll be focusing in on verses 4 through 9. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So to set the context a little bit, these verses that focus on anxiety, they don't exist all by themselves. That much should be obvious to us. They're part of this larger passage at the end of Philippians that is primarily about having joy and contentment in the Lord. So at the end of the day, the goal isn't necessarily to be anxiety-free, but combating our anxiety is a component of how we pursue Christian joy and Christian contentment. So this morning, I'd like to share with you six ways that God instructs us to deal with our anxiety. Six ways that God instructs us to deal with our anxieties. And number one, rejoice in the Lord always. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And we start off in verse 4 with a command. This is a command to rejoice. Actually, we're commanded twice to rejoice here, in case we might have missed it. So I'd like to point out when, when are we called to rejoice? Always. This means at all times, not sometimes, not when things are okay, not on Sunday mornings, but it also means in all circumstances. So it's not just a time thing. It means when things are going well, when things are not going so well. And if we would consider for a moment the man who is issuing this command, it's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is under house arrest as he writes this letter. And yet, his words throughout the entirety of the entire epistle are just overflowing with joy and gratitude for the Philippian church. You can't read the book of Philippians and walk away from it without sensing this deep-rooted joy that Paul writes with. And also consider the other side. Who are the recipients of this letter? It's the Philippian church. And at this time, there was apparently some major internal conflict that was going on in the church that was centered around these two characters, Euodia and Syntyche. We see this in the verses directly preceding our passage for today. And although we don't know the exact nature of their disagreement, it's severe enough that Paul calls them out on it in his letter by name. And he makes it a point to tell them, hey, get along. Paul's command to rejoice comes directly after imploring these two ladies to agree in the Lord. So he expects this church to rejoice, even amidst a very public dispute in their midst. You see, inherent in this command to rejoice, it's a lesson about the nature of Christian joy. It's an implication that rejoicing is not just a passive reaction that we have to something, but it's a conscious decision, one that you can obey even with difficulty. Christian joy is not something that just comes and it goes, but it can persist and it can remain at all times. Now, does this mean that there's never any sadness or never any grief in the life of an obedient Christian? No. Sadness and grief, they are natural and appropriate responses, but that doesn't mean that you still can't maintain an underlying joy even amidst sadness. And you can see this, right? When you see people who are grieving and you sense that they still have hope, that's what it looks like. So how does this work? Well, there is a key command in, key phrase, sorry, in this command that helps us to understand how this works. This is not a command to rejoice in your circumstances and how great they are. Rather, it is a command to specifically rejoice in the Lord. So underneath the fluctuating ups and downs of either our emotions or our circumstances, there is an unchanging truth and reality that we are in the Lord. And yes, our circumstances, they may constantly change throughout our life, but the reason why Paul can say with confidence, rejoice always, is because if we're truly in the Lord, that truth will give us hope. And it will not disappoint, and it will not change. Might I remind you that joy is actually a fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, if you've got the Spirit, you can have joy. The Spirit doesn't abandon you when things get rough. 
So you always have a means to rejoice, always. And rejoicing is not only something you do, it becomes a part of who you are. And Jesus talks about this principle in Matthew 7, doesn't he? He says, starting in verse 16, it says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So in other words, joy is such a foundational part of who you are that when the pressures of life squeeze you, joy comes out. What comes out of you when you get squeezed is who you are. If you're a Christian, when life squeezes you, you may not be doing cartwheels and jumping for joy, but there is a deep contentment that is revealed in Christ. The next verse in our passage, verse 5, says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And that's our second point for today. Be reasonable with others. Be reasonable with others. And the idea of being reasonable is that you demonstrate patience with others. You're not irritated or demanding of them. Another word that comes to mind here is gentleness. Some of your versions may say that. Or um, forbearance, meaning full of mercy when you're dealing with others. You're not selfish because selfishness and joy, they don't really go together, at least not godly joy. In fact, one of the recurring themes in the entire book of Philippians is the joy that you have in the Lord. So someone who is reasonable does not insist on their own rights. Now, how is that related to anxiety? Well, when we get anxious, we get unreasonable, don't we? You start to act in an ungracious way towards others who aren't exhibiting the same sense of urgency as your anxiety would dictate. You become forceful in trying to change your circumstances to something that is more favorable for you. You start to do things that are more unreasonable or extreme to fix or find some relief from your situation. And if things aren't resolving the way that you want, you could get impatient. You get demanding. You get even indignant and angry at times. How dare that other people not be controlled by my anxieties? Don't you know that I'm running late? How dare you drive slowly in front of me? Don't you know I have a deadline? How dare you not respond to my email? This is the phenomenon behind road rage, the phenomenon behind workaholism, the same phenomenon behind those who actually turn to substances for relief from their anxiety. That's escapism is also a form of trying to control our circumstances. So if you are in the flesh, you do unreasonable things to quell your anxiety. If you are in the flesh, you do unreasonable things to quell your anxiety. Is that how we get when we become anxious? But those who are in the spirit are joyful rather than anxious and will act reasonably towards others. The text says, to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You should be known as a reasonable person. If you're rejoicing and thankful for your circumstances, if you're not controlled by your anxiety, you exhibit a reasonable and gentle demeanor with others rather than a forceful or demanding demeanor. The next instruction for us is found in the second half of verse 5. It's a short and rather interesting phrase. It says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. What does that mean? And what does it have to do with us being reasonable with one another? This is actually our third instruction for how to deal with our anxiety. It's to rest in the imminence 
of the Lord, to rest in the imminence of the Lord. If we consider the context of this phrase, the Lord is at hand in the light of the book of Philippians directly, but also the general usage of this phrase in the scriptures, it's likely referring to the fact that the Lord is returning soon. He is at hand. He is near. The fact that the Lord is returning soon is supposed to help us be joyful and be reasonable, even amid circumstances that would otherwise prompt anxiety in us. Why? Because if Christ is coming back, he will resolve everything. So we don't need to worry about doing it ourselves. You don't have to be unreasonable or demanding. We can be content with our circumstances because Christ is going to set things right. If we want ideal circumstances, just wait, because Christ is coming back. And that's the ultimate ideal circumstance that we can find ourselves in with our Lord. You don't have to make sure that you get your due. You don't have to demand that others bow down to your anxiety, because Christ is going to make it all right. And it's far more important for us, knowing that he's coming back, to live for him and to love one another when we're anticipating his return. James 5, 7 to 8 says, Be patient. Similar idea, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So instead of flittering about with nervous energy, trying to fix and control or escape everything and do everything in our power to resolve things in our anxiety, remember the incredible truth that the Lord is at hand. The way that we combat our anxiety is not to struggle or to strive or to fight to control our worries, but to rest in the knowledge that the Lord is near. And he is not just a sympathetic friend, a shoulder to cry on, someone to hear you out. He's a lot more than that. He is the sovereign Lord over all. And if we are walking with him, if we concern ourselves with his kingdom rather than our own kingdom, we can enjoy the confidence that a sovereign Lord overall will accomplish his purposes without fail. We don't need to be anxious about that. We don't need to worry about that. If we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then we know that we will be provided for by the same God who has all the power and all the authority to bring about his own will. But alternatively, let's do the flip side. When we start to place our own kingdom above God's kingdom, that is when our anxiety starts to creep in and our anxiety starts to take over. Because if our kingdom, if that's our primary concern, God made no promise to build our kingdom. So if that's what we're worried about, if that's what we're concerned about, yeah, we should be worried because God is not about building our kingdom. So what is undeniably true is that apart from the Lord, we will not be able to deal with our anxiety. The fact that the Lord is near, it connects this call to rejoice and be reasonable with our next point, which is the fourth way to deal with our anxiety. It's to replace your anxiety with thankful prayer. To replace your anxiety with thankful prayer. And we see this in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And many times you'll see this pattern in scripture. As we're exhorted to grow, we are to take something that is of our old self and then put it off. And then in a corresponding move, 
We're to take something of the new life and of the spirit and put that on. And this is no different. We're called to put off our anxiety, to put off the deeds of the flesh that seek to resolve our own anxieties, and we're called to put on prayer and put on supplication. And make a note of the language used here. If you're reading the ESV, it's going to say, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. And although the ESV does get the correct idea, it kind of obscures the extreme contrast that Paul is making here. For those of you NASB folks, it may say something different. And literally it says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Okay, so we have nothing on one side, and we have everything on the other side. What are you to be anxious about? Nothing. What are you to pray about? Everything. There's not one single thing where it's okay to hold on to your anxieties about. Nothing. No matter how big or how small it may be, we are not to be anxious about it. Now, you might say, hold on, hold on. What about being anxious for the well-being of other people. Isn't that okay? Actually, doesn't Paul himself say in this very book that he would have less anxiety if he could send back Epaphroditus to the Philippian church? Yeah, he does say that. He says that in chapter 2, verse 28. But the call to, to be anxious for nothing here does not mean that we're carefree, right? It does not mean that we're unconcerned about the things that God is concerned about. So you should have a godly concern for people who aren't walking well with the Lord. You should have a godly concern over people who don't know the Lord and are dead in their sins. But that godly concern recognizes that God is in control and he's able to do what he wills. And it comes with a proper understanding of our responsibility towards those concerns. And I'll say that again. Godly concern recognizes that God is in control and able to do what he wills. And it comes with a proper understanding of our responsibility towards our concerns. For example, I have a concern that if my daughter were to see electrical outlets in our home that she can reach, she might decide that sticking something in those outlets would be fun. Therefore, Joanna and I bought covers for all of those outlets so that Evie wouldn't be able to do something that would harm her. Were we disobeying Paul's command to not be anxious for anything? No. If our concern is born out of the care that God wants parents to have for their children, and our concern doesn't come from a distorted reality that distrusts God's power and his providence, then our concern exists in the universe where God is in control, where God and we properly understand our responsibilities in that situation. That's not the kind of anxiety that Paul prohibits here. But when our concerns become unreasonable, when they distort reality of who God is and begin to reorder the priorities of what we're supposed to be faithful with, then we're getting out of the realm of godly concern and we enter the realm of ungodly anxiety. So the anxiety that Paul prohibits here comes from a heart that distrusts the divine power and providence of God. And then your heart and your mind takes those seeds of distrust and it runs with it, away from the truth of God. You see, the heart of anxiety, it will obsess over hypotheticals, what-if scenarios, to what could happen, 
obsessing over things that are not even real. And those things become greater than what is actually true. Ungodly anxiety is an, is an anxiety that distorts reality. And isn't that the truth? Anxiety distorts the reality of who God is, and it makes your problems seem bigger than God. So when our concerns are outsized compared to the character of God, you have an anxiety problem. So what are we supposed to do instead? What are we supposed to do? So we had be anxious for nothing on one side, and on the other side, what do we have? What do we put on? The text says, in everything... So meaning all the things that are in our lives, everything that is in the scope of God's sovereignty, we are to make our requests known to God. God doesn't tell us to deal with our anxiety by doing nothing or by ignoring it and pretending that it's not there. He tells us to pray. And this doesn't say, think about and dwell on your anxieties. Mull over them until you're satisfied, because that, that doesn't work. It doesn't say, roll up your sleeves and take control of the situation. It doesn't say, take it to someone else first. What does it say? Be anxious for nothing. Pray in everything. Make your request known to God. There are actually multiple contrasts going on here. We talked about the contrast of being anxious for nothing, but praying in everything, right? But we also have this contrast between letting your reasonableness be known to everyone versus letting your requests be made known to God. So when we're feeling anxious, which direction do you go to for relief? Will you go to men and men's solutions? Will your anxieties and requests be made known to men? No. Or will your heart go in the direction of God, laying your burdens on him because he is the one who cares for you? There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground for us to dabble in anxiety or handle some things on our own that we don't need the Lord for. If there's middle ground, I don't see it in this passage. None of the anxieties that you experience are out of bounds or not covered or out of scope. In everything, let your requests be made known to God. And the text calls us to do so by prayer and supplication. What does that mean? Not too long on this, but it should be obvious. You should pray. And you should ask. And it is obvious, but I still mention it because somehow it gets overlooked. Like I have to say it. Sometimes when people say they pray about something, they don't actually pray about it. They've molded over in their minds. They've thought about it, but they did not actually go to the Lord, talk to him, and pray, which seems rather silly. You have access to the creator of the universe, the sovereign one over all of your circumstances, who loves you, who tells you to come to him as children to their father, and you don't pick up the phone. God does not call you to carry your own burdens. You're not supposed to. You're designed to be dependent, not to have everything handled on your own. And maybe, just maybe, God is bringing you your difficult circumstances right now so that you will learn to pray that you would learn to pick up the phone and call him. There's also one other small phrase here that is incredibly important as well. And Paul didn't just throw this in haphazardly. It says, with thanksgiving. When we pray for the things that we're anxious about, how many of us approach it with thanksgiving? The impulse of our heart is generally, first, Lord, take this away. 
rather than, Lord, thank you for this. Thankfulness and anxiety don't mix. So if you approach the Lord with thankfulness in your heart, even for the very thing that is triggering your anxiety, it begins the process of setting things right in your heart. If we make our requests without thanksgiving, our prayers become, Lord, do this, Lord, do this, Lord, do that. We go from being unreasonable with others to being unreasonable with God. But if we approach the Lord with an attitude of thanksgiving, that begins to correct our thinking. Thanksgiving puts things back into their proper order and prominence, and we return God to his rightful place as a sovereign provider who loves and cares for us. And when we put God back in his proper place, those distorted realities that our anxieties create, they will start to resemble the truth once again. And the main truth that we're not just making our requests known to anyone. We are making our requests known to God. So remember that God is a God who takes care of us. If you are a believer and you have a relationship with God, he who did not spare even his own son for you, how would he then fail to provide for you? It comes from Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Now for a moment, let's turn to another famous passage on anxiety. If you guys can grab your Bibles and turn over to the Gospel of Matthew and turn to chapter 6. As you guys turn there, I originally wanted to preach from this passage. But I figured if Mark continues on through the Sermon on the Mount, he'll eventually get here and cover this. So I opted for our passage in Philippians instead. But these two passages really share the same heart. So we're going to go to Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is your God. Do you believe this? This is the objective, inarguable truth of who God is to us. And when we're consumed by our anxiety, it is precisely because we've lost sight of who God really is. The anxious person doesn't see God like this, and that's why we're anxious. Not because our circumstances are overwhelming, but because our God does not seem to be greater than them. A great picture of this can be found in the story of Elisha and his servant. 
And uh, if you can, let's turn there because it's a cool story. It's in Second Kings chapter 6. So we're going Old Testament here, Second Kings 6. And as you turn there, let me just set the context a little bit. So it's wartime. The king of Syria, he's out to capture Elisha because Elisha's kind of, you know, getting in the way of his plans. He finds out where Elisha is staying, and then he proceeds to send his armies and surround that city with his army throughout the night. So the next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, looks outside, and he has a rude awakening. Let's just say that he experienced quite a bit of anxiety over what he saw. So let's pick up in 2 Kings 6, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So Elisha's servant did not see the reality of who God was and what God was doing. And he was fearful because of it. Through prayer, his eyes were opened to the reality that God was actually present with them. And they were more than amply provided for. Entire armies are not overwhelming if you are in the presence of someone who is so much greater. So when you're anxious, you need to pray. Pray that you might see that he who is with you is greater than everything that is against you. God is greater than your anxieties. Even your anxieties can't stop God from accomplishing his will. So to recap our points thus far, we have rejoice in the Lord always, be reasonable towards others, rest in the imminence of the Lord, and replace your anxiety with thankful prayer. Our next point shows us what happens when we pray with thankfulness to God. We receive the promised peace of God. We receive the promised peace of God. And we see that in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Note that the peace that is given here is specifically God's peace. It's not worldly peace that he gives us. A worldly peace is a false peace that comes with the solutions of the flesh. The world's problems may give you temporary relief, but you leave unchanged. The same anxious person as you were before just awaiting the next thing that's going to come along and worry you. The peace of God is a peace that comes from God. It rests in the character of God and the nature of your relationship with God. It's a relationship with a God who, unlike your circumstances or your day-to-day emotional fluctuations, does not change. If you're a believer and God is your father, he does not become less of a father when you're having a bad day or when things go wrong. This peace is not based on you or what is around you, but in a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And notice that this verse does not say that God will come and fix whatever is making you anxious. 
It doesn't say that the God who is sovereign over all things is going to bend heaven and earth to resolve your circumstances. It doesn't say anything about your circumstances. From the world's perspective, if the circumstances around your anxiety don't change, then your anxiety doesn't change. If you have an exam that's coming up, or you have a job interview coming up, or if you have a performance review coming soon, or an upcoming expense that you're just not quite sure how you're going to pay for, or if you need to have a hard conversation with someone and you don't know how they're going to take it, even if none of those things change, you can still be freed from your anxiety through the peace of God. And how that happens is beyond our understanding. The way that God chooses to work in your heart through your thankful prayers will be in many ways inscrutable to us. And quite frankly, we don't need to understand it. God does not call us to understand how it happens. He just calls us to trust in him. We don't need an explanation. We don't need exactly, God, are you going to do this and then this and then this and then my anxiety will be freed. Uh, We just need to trust in him. We just need our father. And he's enough. My daughter, Evelyn, she's about three and a half years old. And until recently, she would get extremely scared every time we turned on the blender. These are the anxieties of a three-year-old. This was such a consistent response that Joanna could not make smoothies in the morning or prepare soups or something in the evening until, unless I was in the room when she turned on the blender. So Joanna would turn on the blender, and immediately, with no hesitation, Evie would stop, drop everything that she was doing, and she would run as fast as she could towards me and cling tightly to me. When she did this, those loud, whirring sounds of a blender blasting at 30,000 RPMs didn't change, didn't slow down. Coming to me did not affect the operation of the blender or reduce the volume in any way. And you could say that I, I did nothing to fix the circumstances. But every time we turn on the blender, she'd come running. Not because I stopped it, but because I'm her father. And she knows that she's safe when she's with me. And she wouldn't be able to explain it to you. She doesn't understand why coming to me when she's scared comforts her or brings her peace, but it does. And all she knows that is if she's scared, go to daddy and she'll be okay. When we experience fear and anxiety, do we run to God simply for the fact that he is our father and we trust him? We don't have to have the answers. We don't need to have it figured out. We don't need to scientifically dissect our anxiety, parse out what primal lizard brain response is triggering this or what repressed trauma is being aggravated here. No, there's none of that. Go to God and his peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen? You see, God's focus, it's not on your circumstances. His focus is on your heart and your mind. The change that God provides is internal, not external. So while we want God to change our circumstances, God wants to use our circumstances to change us. While we want God to change our circumstances, God wants to use our circumstances to change us. And that's an assurance. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It doesn't say that the peace of God might guard your hearts and your minds or will probably do so. It says that it will guard your hearts and your minds. So if you're feeling anxious, how much do you believe in that? How much do you believe in that scripture? 
we might affirm the church's doctrinal statement. It says that the Holy Scriptures are inspired, inerrant, infallible. But if we are anxious, it reveals how much that we actually believe that. And that last little prepositional phrase here is easily overlooked in Christ Jesus. When we pray to God about our anxieties, his peace guards our hearts and minds in Christ and only in Christ. This means if you don't have a relationship with Christ, then you simply won't have this peace. You see, this peace is given to those who know God. And the only way that we can know God is in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, the comfort that we receive is from our Father. And if you don't have Christ, God is not your Father. And you won't get that peace from Him. Instead, if you don't know Christ, you actually should be anxious. The wrath of God is upon you. And for as long as you don't place your faith in His Son, Jesus Christ... You have no reason to expect peace to come from God unless you believe in the name of his son. So lastly, I want to talk a little bit about how you can maintain the peace that God provides. It's not about your works. It's not about your efforts. But God does give us instruction on what to do from the Apostle Paul and how to remain close to God and specifically remain close to the God of peace. It's to think but not about the things that you're anxious about. You see, when you're anxious, you are like a cow. Huh? When a cow eats, it chews. A lot. It's called ruminating. If you're anxious about something, you chew on it. A lot. You ruminate on it. In fact, even when you believe that you may be done thinking about it, you still need to digest it. So you digest it, you think about it some more, you dwell on it, and then you do it again, and then again. Cows have four stomachs. They just keep on digesting what they eat over and over and over again. And if you are an anxious person, you might be doing the same thing, thinking about something and dwelling on it over and over and over again to where it starts to dominate your thoughts. So what does God say to to you? He actually says that you should think, but to think about better things. That's our last point for today. Ruminate on better things. Ruminate on better things. And he gives you a list here, starting in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is not about the power of positive thinking. It is about putting off the old self and putting on the new. It is about orienting your mind around the person of God so that his character and his calling for you is at the forefront of your mind and that is what's dominating your thoughts rather than being dominated by the things that you're anxious over. Now, can you think of anything that fits this description? True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Can you think of anything that checks these boxes that you should ruminate on or meditate on? And hopefully you guys know where I'm going with this. Psalm 19. It's a good one. They're all good ones. But this is a really good one. Psalm 19. Turn there, please. And we're going to go down to verse 7. And I want you guys to see this in your Bibles. 
Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Brothers and sisters, what checks all these boxes, where your mind should be filled with and meditating on, is the very word of the Lord. If the majority of your thoughts each day are on the things of the world, and I don't care how harmless or innocuous those things are, if they're not of the Lord and they're not the good things of his word, are we really surprised that we get anxious? If your mind is constantly on your work or on the stock market or on world events or even on your entertainment and hobbies, if your mind is not on the Lord, then you're not drawing near to the God of peace and it's only a matter of time if you don't have the God of peace and you're not close to him, that those anxieties are going to take over. Are we surprised that we lack peace when we don't think about God and his word? And when your mind is on the things of scripture, the things of the Lord, they will be brought inevitably to the commands and the instructions the Lord has given to us. You see, when we're anxious, many times there can be all this nervous energy that we have, just trying to do things in the flesh. But when we're walking in God's ways, all that energy can then be submitted to putting into practice the things that the Lord has commanded us to do. And when we're doing and putting into practice the things that the Lord has commanded us, what promise does God have for you? So back, Philippians 4, the last verse in our passage, verse 9. It says, what you have learned and received and heard in in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. As you focus on obeying the things that the Lord has put before you, you remain close to the God of peace. And isn't that an amazing promise, that the God of peace will be with you? And I'll leave you with one of the most comforting verses in the Bible, Isaiah 41.10. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What do you see there? What's the solution for our anxiety? God himself and nothing else is the solution for your anxiety. Let's pray. Father God, We come before you and we thank you that you are indeed the God of peace. And we come before you and confess any times that we don't see you in that way, that where our anxieties may become larger and more prominent in our hearts and in our minds, over and above you, Lord. Father, would you grant us your peace, grant us your anxiety. We don't need to understand how it works or have things figured out. We just need to trust in you. We just need to know that you are our God. And you give us clear instruction here to come before you. And Lord, whatever anxieties that we may have right now, for anybody here, anybody who's listening, those anxieties that are in our hearts right now, and we lift them up to you now. 
understanding that you will guard our hearts and our minds and that you're doing something, a great work through it. So we thank you, Father, for being our God, for loving us in this way. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.